do, 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 do. When the cold of winter comes, sunny dreams will cover day. Do, 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 do. But in dreams, but in dreams, we'll... I don't know all the words. I've been playing on piano recently. You know I'm recording this, right? Yeah, but it's not going to be on the podcast, is it? Uh Hey, welcome to the Canadian Jewish Schmooze. I'm your host, Alex Rose. And I'm Michael Freeman. Today on the episode, I'm going to talk about my recent trip to Israel and the West Bank with a trip called Kaleidoscope. After that, we'll have an interview with Oscar-winning composer Howard Shore, who worked on The Lord of the Rings, many Cronenberg films, and more. Finally, we're going to end the show by asking, do Jews really need to worry about cable guys? That segment will make a lot more sense uh, in about 20 or 30 minutes, if you don't know what we're talking about already. Before we talk about my trip, Michael, I understand you had a recent trip also? Yeah, uh, I was fortunate enough to be invited by the London, Ontario Jewish community uh, to give a talk. Um, this was something they emailed me about uh, uh, back in, in May. They have this lecture series. It's called GEM. When they asked me what I wanted to talk about, I said, how about Jewish TV? Because I'd just written that. Oh, wait, so they emailed you. Uh, without an idea in mind they just wanted you yeah, to talk they said whatever. you seem like an interesting person and I, cool. I, I was flattered uh so i i spoke about jewish tv which i've written about for the cjn i've talked about it here on this podcast this this notion of uh, jewish peak tv and so it was scheduled months in advance they booked me a hotel they were very accommodating we had dinner plans it was all set in stone they, they do this all well in advance and my talk was scheduled for this past Monday, which, if you live in southern Ontario, you know was a freak snowstorm. Right. Dumping, uh, if you live in the Niagara region, like I do, 30 centimeters of snow on the ground. Um, for our non-Canadian uh, listeners, that's a lot of snow. That's a, it's an, it's, especially for November. It's about a foot. That's a lot of snow. So uh, some people who know me will also know I uh, just got my driver's license this year. Mazel tov. However... I had to drive 150 kilometers to get to London on the day of the snowstorm with this new used car that I've only had for about two weeks. It's like the opposite of trial by fire. So it, not only did I have to, uh, was I fishtailing at 60 kilometers an hour along the highway for a total of five hours. I missed the dinner, couldn't make it on time. I arrived about 10 minutes before I was supposed to go on. And I was a, I, it was five hours of tension in this car. It was a brutal experience. Not only the first time I'd driven in snow, I would say maybe the 20th time I had driven ever in my life. <laughs> like, it was not... Anyway, I'm sure my, my mother is listening to this and absolutely mortified. At least I'm, she's only hearing about it after. You know what the irony of it is, though? When, when they asked me what date I'd like to give this lecture in London, they said, you can do November, you can do January or February. And I said, oh, I'll do November. I don't want to drive in the snow. <laughs> So you brought it upon yourself. But Hashem was on my side, and he delivered me safely. There were like 400 crashes reported to the OPP. Wow. In, in the 24-hour period of that snowstorm. And I was not one of them. So, yeah, no, good for you. And, and how was the talk? That was all right. The talk went well. It was it, Once I got there, it was very lovely. Lovely Jewish community in London, Ontario. Very accommodating. 
they, they, they told me in the 14 years of doing this lecture series, no one has ever talked about this subject, Jewish television. They get a lot of like biblical and cultural and historical kind of stuff. So, so they enjoyed it? They enjoyed it. It was nice. And if you're interested and you haven't listened to our episode with Emily Nussbaum, TV critic, you can go back and hear some of what, Michael, I'm sure you talked about at London too, right? That's right. Yeah, I did talk about it uh, with Emily Nussbaum. I think I also talked about it in an earlier episode when, when the article came out in the CJN. Yeah, yeah, back we in, did speak about Back it. in April. So yeah, we've got a couple episodes if this is something you're interested in listening to and yeah. haven't heard them before. But enough about me. Alex, you took a much more interesting trip than just a, a hazardous drive through this through a blizzard to London, Ontario. You went to the Holy Land, Israel. Yeah. And I actually haven't talked to you about it because I wanted to save it for the podcast. Yeah. So I'm genuinely curious, what did you do there? You know, people have asked me to describe this trip. It's called Kaleidoscope um, because it's kind of a metaphor for the idea that generally when we go on Israel trips, we get the same picture of Israel. You do Masada, you do the Western Wall, you do Tel Aviv, you know, maybe um, you spend some time in the, near the Galilee and you see Sfat. But it's the same, like, kind of mainstream, kind of centrist view in the sense that, like, um, it, it fits in with our liberal democratic values. And the people that we interact with, for the most part, aren't challenging those values. But this trip, Kaleidoscope, um, was designed to kind of introduce diaspora Jews to a more complex picture of Israel, and, and I'd say a more realistic one. More, more complex than what? Like you're comparing it, I assume, to birthright. And so, and, yeah, and, and, yeah, and, 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 and March of the Living and, and my, um, you know, my brother's bar mitzvah trip, you know, we, we, it was all the same kind of sites that we see. So this was put on by Makom, which is the Israel education arm of the Jewish agency. Um, so yeah, more complex in the sense that we met settlers, we met rabbis who said no Arab should live anywhere on, in Israel, not just today's borders, but all of greater Israel from the ri river to the sea. Um, we met Palestinian people. We met a really left-wing um, secular Jewish director, for example, who said, Israel basically shouldn't be a Jewish state, but just a democratic one. Um, and we met a lot of people kind of in between. Interesting. That is neat. So you mentioned before, this is the first time you went to the West Bank. Yeah. Now you're a, a young Jewish boy. You've been involved in Hillel. You're at the Canadian Jewish News. So what was it like being in the West Bank for the first time? Um, we didn't go too far in. It was in Bethlehem. So we got a tour and then we saw, do you know of the uh, uh, Waldorf Astoria Hotel? Uh, I don't in, think wait. in Bethlehem. Walled off, not Waldorf. It's a pun. Oh it's, no, it's, then I'm not actually familiar with okay. this pun. So it's the it's called itself the worst view in the world because it its view is the border wall, um, and it's in Bethlehem, and it's it's kind of it's made by a British artist and some other British guy because they're kind of like trying to take ownership of the fact that it was their handling of the situation that played a big part in the conflict, um, and so we we went there. Um, and we got a tour from a local guy, and then we went to speak to someone representing the Holy Land Trust, which is um, kind of trying to use religion to, I don't know if integrate is the right word, but uh, maybe normalize isn't the right word either because it has such strong connotations in this context. But just to improve relations among Christians, Jews, and Muslims in the area. Um, and this is a guy who, he's a Christian Palestinian. He actually went to Auschwitz of his own accord, and he's, he's bringing, um, you know, other Palestinian people to see Auschwitz a few at a time, but his community doesn't like that very much. Hmm. Um, and he wants peace, but he also, you know, said the most realistic option in his mind is the one-state solution. And, of course, a lot of people, uh, 
here and a lot of Israelis and just a lot of Jews in general don't like that because it kind of defeats the whole purpose. But a theme that came up over and over is that nobody really believes in the two-state solution anymore. No. Because of the settlements. I've, I've found that as well. I was in Israel about uh, just, over, just under a year ago. Um, and I also went to the West Bank for the first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I met, I, I didn't go to Bethlehem. We, we did an independent route. So we just kind of went to, to Ramallah. We took like a, a public transit bus from Jerusalem and then went up to a, a guest house that was about 13 kilometers north of Ramallah. And uh, we met a lot of similar sounding people, uh, mostly Christian Palestinians, mm-hmm. which is, I think, is a theme for people who tend to, for, for like, I don't know, newbies or, or, or people who like want to see Palestine, but like the safer side of yeah. it. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll meet a lot of these good people. And not to say that the Muslim ones are, are, are any less, it's just there, there, it tends to be maybe farther afield, farther inland, in, in slightly more uh, uh, potentially dangerous neighborhoods. Um, this is all in the West Bank, of course, not in Gaza we're talking about, yeah. um, for obvious reasons. But a lot of people I met with said very similar things, hoping for one state solution. Most of them had no hope for peace at all. But those that were making some kind of effort did have this kind of this attitude of universal pain and suffering. Like it wasn't just, they, they wanted to make it very clear that the, it was not a binary us versus them issue. They were saying, we sympathize with, with the plight of Jewish people. We just hope other people sympathize with us as well, instead of just painting us all as bad guys. And so I get that kind of sense from this, from this gentleman organizing trips to Auschwitz. It's like this very eager kind of outreach to try to connect people to, 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 because if you show them that you're empathetic, maybe they'll be empathetic to you back. I don't think it's even just that strategic or, or cynical in the sense that he's only expressing empathy in hopes of a return. I think it's genuine because I think he, he did learn about it. I think that's part of the reason that you know he, he thinks that's the way for people to see him as a person is to make the step first of, of seeing other people um, as total people and not just, you know, because what he said before, his only image of a Jewish person was an IDF soldier who was in his town and, and taking away a lot of his rights and freedoms. And so, you know, he's trying to understand how it got to this place and why Jews feel like they need a, a land of their own. And yeah, but he does, you know, expect that if they can, if he can understand that for them, that, that more people will understand why they feel the same way. It sounds like you met extremists on the Zionist side. I'm not sure if you met him on, on the Palestinian side, but let's, let's stick with, say, the settlers or, or the radical rabbi. Did anyone in your group challenge them and were, were there heated moments or do you kind of just politely nod and listen and then think it over afterward or yeah. criticize them in your mind afterward there was one um kind of heated moment there wasn't it, it wasn't so heated in the sense that we knew what we were getting into and necessarily like we, we weren't trying to change these people's minds but with the rabbi for example um he lives in a i guess village town called um, view of the Galilee in English. It used to be called Upper Nazareth, but they just changed the name this year because Nazareth is an Arab town uh, with a lot of Christian and Muslim Arabs. Mm-hmm. And when it was called Upper Nazareth, uh, Nazareth elite in Hebrew, a lot of non-Jewish people were moving into the neighborhood and they built it to be Jewish. So they really don't like that non-Jewish people are moving into the neighborhood. And so this guy was telling us he doesn't believe any non-Jew should be in the neighborhood or in the land of Israel as I said, and, you know, he tells his children that, but he has to figure out how to live with them while they are here. Do you ignore them? Do you respect them? Are you hateful towards them? And, you know, he tries to 
not be hateful and respect them. Although he, I don't know if he said if he talks to them or not, but he's not going to like actively discriminate against them. Well, that's a start. But then someone on our trip asked, so how would you feel, you know, this is what you say to your child. What if, you know, the Arab man living next door to you says the exact same thing to his children about you? And he, the man who asked this was you know, quite upset, you could tell. Um, I thought it was a very good question, to be honest, because, you know, it's, it's a way to kind of get into his head. Like, and he said, if that's what he believes, he has to tell his kid what he believes. You know, the same way I have to do what I believe. I expect other people to do what they believe. And um, I, I talked to the man who asked the question about this at the end of the trip because I actually kind of respected that answer. Um, and he didn't have as much respect for the man just because he's like, his ideology is so hateful. But... Um, so the, the guy who asked the question is, is of the opinion that personal beliefs that, that should Israel, be set aside in a community. More that Israel should be a democratic state. So, and it's not just only for Jews. There are people who live here who shouldn't be forced out, for example. Mm. I think it's closer to that. Because a lot of the trip was about the tension between Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. And if uh, it can be both at once and, you know, what parts might not be democratic and, and things like that. Do you think that Israel can be a Jewish and democratic state? This is my sense. Um, and I kind of had this opinion before the trip. I still think I have it now is that even at the best of times, there's going to be an underlying tension between the Jewish and democratic aspects. It's not impossible to maintain a Jewish state with democratic rights for all the people in its borders. Is it doing that right now? No, I don't think so. Um, as long as, you know, there's a military occupation and people under its control don't have full democratic rights. I don't think you can say it's a fully democratic state. I, I do think um, there is democracy within the the Israel part of its borders, not talking about the, the territories. But, I mean, the other thing I realized is for people who do want some kind of solution, even if they're the majority, or they were at some point, because there's much less hope than there was during like the, the Oslo Accords process. That's what I realized. There was a lot of hope. Our tour guide in Palestine, his family moved back from Jordan to the West Bank. They'd, his parents had been born in Jerusalem after the Oslo Accords because they thought there was about to be peace. Dude, there were like parties in the streets. Yeah. There were parades. Like there were, it, was, it was close. It's not that I think the extremists have necessarily like ruined any chance for peace all by themselves but it's more that they've ruined a lot of the hope for peace too because both sides think there's no one to work with on the other side because all they see is the kind of like we talk about a vocal minority this is more than a vocal minority it's a violent minority in some cases i don't know if peace is possible anytime soon but what i did come away thinking is it's not going to be top down do you have any other thoughts i think we should uh put a bow on this for now, put a pin in this conversation. One of the reasons we don't talk about Israel-Palestine a lot on this program is because there's literally no logical end point yeah, to an, any discussion or debate about Israel. I guess I, I just want to say this then. Um, acknowledging like the suffering and, and I'd say the unfairness of the situation from the Palestinian perspective, you can say that they perpetuated it by not being real partners for peace, and, and I won't uh, disagree with you, but, you know, they... They happened to live on the land that we also wanted and we took it by force and good for us, but we have it because we believe we need a homeland. But I don't know. I think if you believe in, in the right of people for self-determination, then you're kind of undermining the, the Zionist argument if you don't apply it to all people.
and now for something in a completely different direction. Alex, last week, uh, while you were away, I had the honor of interviewing Howard Shore, who is the Oscar-winning Canadian Jewish composer of the Lord of the Rings series. Um, he's also worked... The man is a is a true legend. I mean, he's worked on numerous Scorsese films. He's done most of the Cronenberg movies, David Cronenberg, another Canadian Jew. I... Uh, learned that they grew up near each other, um, he and David Cronenberg. Likewise with Lorne Michaels, the creator of Saturday Night Live. I think, I'm think i not sure if he met him in the neighborhood or if they just went to camp together. I know you went to the same camp. Camp Timberlane, represent. And so we did talk about that. I, I asked him about this sort of Canadian-Jewish community where he was growing up. I asked him about Timberlane. And we talk mostly uh, in the second half about the new movie that he has coming out. Well, he has, that he is involved with that's coming out. He called it one of the most, if not the most personal film he's worked on. It's called The Song of Names. It is a film about uh, a, a boy whose father, back in the 1940s, takes in a young Jewish-Polish uh, prodigy, violin prodigy. And th- they're, they're in Britain. And this British boy has to figure out how to live with this Polish adopted brother, kind of. And at one point, years down the line, this brother just disappears this is how the movie opens. This is not a spoiler. Uh, it, it opens with this prodigy, this violin prodigy, disappearing the day of his debut uh, performance. And the film skips back and forth between their growing up in 1940s Europe and 35 years later when the boy, who is now Tim Roth, is searching for his brother. I won't say much more about the film. Um, it's a good film. I saw it a few weeks ago. The fact that the boy is this violinist factors in very heavily. It's very music heavy. It's very classical. It's very period. Myself and Mr. Shore, we talk about how he researched what this music should sound like, his process for making it, his own personal connection to the Holocaust, and some of those issues, which is not something that he typically deals with when he's, you know, researching Tolkien and writing elf music. So without further ado, uh, here is my interview with Howard Shore. And a quick disclaimer, We did it in a hotel bar lobby, so there's some music in the background. Occasionally you'll hear glasses clanging. I think a baby cries at one point. So there's some audio issues, and I apologize for it, but when you're handed an interview opportunity with an Oscar-winning legendary composer, you just do it wherever they ask. Well, thanks again. I can see you're very tired. (laughs) I apologize for... (laughs) I apologize in advance for having to ask you questions, but it's both of our jobs. Um, You mentioned that you were doing interviews since nine this morning. Yes. Have any of them asked you about your time at Jewish summer camp? Uh, No. Okay, so I can be the first at least. I'm wondering if you could tell me a, a, a bit about your time back at Camp Timberlane, was it, right? At Timberland, uh, it did come up in some conversations, actually, because it's where I met Lorne Michaels, and we did a show on Saturday night at camp called The Fast Show. It was a predecessor to shows like Saturday Night Live. But I guess I'm just kind of curious, like, what, what was your time at camp like? Not, not just the, the show stuff, but what was the rest of it like? It was wonderful. They were wonderful summers, very memorable, and... Um, I think a lot of friendships developed from that time in those summers at camp. Because you would get out of your routine. You'd be out of the city, away from your parents. You'd be meeting kids, uh, boys and girls from different 
parts of uh, Ontario, sometimes from New York. So it kind of broadened your whole horizon. Was it uh, a very Jewish camp then, as it is now, like Shabbat services and all that sort of stuff? It just had services, yeah, on uh, on Shabbos. And uh, the owner, Barry Lowe's, wasn't Jewish, but he, con- he uh, kept... Uh, you know, the Jew- Jewish faith and with his campers and the staff. So it, ha- it had that center to it. What else was your uh, Jewish upbringing like? Did, were you raised in a very Jewish household? My dad was a religious man. And uh, Max Shore was his name. And he started a synagogue in Toronto called Beth Sholem. He was the first president. And so I grew up in uh, the synagogue in the 50s. And uh, the film that I'd w- been working on called The Song of Names, there's a scene in the film that's set in a small shul in uh, Stoke Newington outside of London. And it's where a principal character discovers his faith. And there's a cantor that sings the Song of Names in that scene. So I had to go back into cantorial uh, you know, into the whole oral tradition of Kent and, and study rec- recordings. There are quite a few old recordings uh, to be able to write that piece uh, faithfully, follow the modes correctly, and uh, create a piece that could have been sung in 1951. Absolutely. I do want to ask more about the Song of Names because I caught it last week. Um, but just before we do, I, I'm, I'm curious also about... Uh, Two of your big collaborators, Lauren Michaels and David Cronenberg, are yeah. also um, Canadian uh, Jewish Canadians. Yeah, I'm curious if that's something that ever came up, or, or did you ever feel like a connection with them because of that, or is it totally incidental? I think it was just uh, the neighborhood we grew up in, and um, we we didn't chose our friends based on their faith, but I think we we connected in certain ways. Like Lauren and I connected at Timberland. David, I knew many of his friends. They're both a little older than me. So as older kids, that you didn't necessarily, uh, you know, interact with them at such a young age. Yeah. When you were doing a lot of work with um, Cronenberg and a lot of your earlier stuff was very, obviously, eerie and moody and, and has a certain uh, quality to it. I'm wondering what what draws you to those types of sounds or what did back then? Um, I was in- I'm interested in music, so film was a way for me to enter into different stories and to tell different stories using music. And some of the darker themes opened up other areas of composition that I was interested in. And also I was interested in the technology working in the recording studio. And so working with David was very, David Cronenberg, was very uh, uh, experimental. Some of the scores were very experimental, and he allowed me a lot of freedom to create music. So we can go back to the Song of Names. I know it's probably what everyone is expecting you to talk about, so we'll talk about it. (laughs) The film is based on a book, Mm -hmm. which is written by a a music critic, is it not? A classical music critic? Critic and journalist, journalist. Norman Lebrecht. Um, Did you have much interaction with him while scoring the film? Uh, no, uh, Francois would. I worked very closely with Francois Girard, the director. Um, Jeffrey Kane wrote the screenplay, 
based on Norman Lebrecht's novel, but I didn't work with them. I worked with Francois. Did, did you feel any pressure writing a composition for something that a music critic uh, uh, had, had come up with? Yes. <laughs> Can you tell me about how you handled that pressure? Uh, by studying. I knew if I studied it, and I spent a long time doing it. I spent over two years working on the film. Uh, the piece isn't that long, but it took me probably a, a year and a few months to feel comfortable to sit down with my pencil. I write with pencil and paper to write a piece that came from my heart that I felt was truthful and that captured the, what might have been in that scene in the film from 1951, after the war. So something that I wasn't clear on when I was watching the film, obviously it ends with this eponymous song of names. That song doesn't really exist, does it? No. So the whole concept of that was, was for the film. Well, it's in probability it could, have, it could exist. I don't know that it does, but it, it, could, it could have existed or part of it could have existed. Um... I mean, in Treblinka, 800,000 souls were lost. So they mentioned in the film that it took five days to read all the names. Right. The song is the song of all the names of the dead. Yeah, yeah, of the departed, yeah, the deceased. And it's a way, it's a song of remembrance. Like O Molay Rakamin is a song of the departed, the how, prayer. How did you get involved in this film? Did someone approach you about it, or did you find out about it? Uh, Robert Lantos is a producer. He connected me, and he connected me to Francois Girard. And I knew Francois's work from uh, The Red Violin and from uh, 32 short films about Glenn Gould. So I knew his work. I was a great admirer of his work. I was delighted that Robert put us together, and it was a good marriage. It was a good match. He was smart that he connected the two of us together. Right. Yeah. Did, did you feel a personal connection to the film while working on it for so many years? Yes. It was very emotional uh, for me. And uh, it was very, uh, felt very deeply we're, we're working on it, particularly because of the time period after the war. It's the exact period that I was in the synagogue and it brought back that whole period up to my bar mitzvah. 1959 was my bar mitzvah. So the movie kind of spans the years uh, from 1936 to 1986. It spans 50 years. But at the heart of it is the Song of Names from 19, early 1950s, which was exactly when I was most active in the synagogue. Obviously, it, it resonated, um, and you say it brought up emotions, but c what kind of emotions? Can you, can you describe it? Like, what kind of thoughts are you thinking, aside from just the fact that there is a personal connection? Well, I had family that had been uh, in the camps, and uh, it brought back memories of my grandfather, and my father has passed, and so it just brought back memories of the family, which I had kind of put away sort of in a in a, uh, a private room, you know. So I kind of opened the door and went into this room and I think kind of reconnected with people from my past, my grandfather, my grandmother, my father, my mother. So that was the emotion of it. 
That's wonderful. I, I assume you don't get a chance to do that when you're skill when you're uh, scoring films all the time. No, it was very personal. This was a very personal piece. Well, I think there, your PR person has given me the, the one minute finger. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all. But thanks again, Mr. Sharper. Good that. talking to you. Enjoyed it. So for our final segment today, we're asking, do Jews really need to worry about cable guys? And before we get to into this, uh, we should acknowledge that the answer is no. Not these cable guys, at least. Not these cable guys. Um, for people who do not know what we are talking about, the most popular article on the Canadian Jewish News website uh, last week, maybe two weeks ago, was um, about these purportedly fake cable guys showing up to a yeshiva and trying to get inside to do their jobs. They didn't have ID. Rogers said they weren't scheduled to come. Rogers Communication, the, the, the cable provider. Right, yeah. So the yeshiva didn't let them in, took a picture of them, and called the police. Right. At this point, we should mention the photo that uh, we used at the Canadian Jewish News and the one that was circulated widely by the yeshiva, I believe, was a photo of these two brown-skinned men in, I don't know, what like workers' vests. Yeah, like like hoodie and orange vests. Standing like outside, staring at this, I don't know, it looks like a, like a doorbell camera or whatever, like kind of blank expressions. Um, it's kind of a grainy image. It's, it's something that as soon as you see it, I think, sparked a lot of racist suspicions in readers or, or racist presumptions. Yeah. And, and, and to, to uh, the CJN's own um, responsibility, I guess, like we, we went with the, the word fake cable guys mm -hmm. try to get into Yeshiva or, you know, stopped from getting into Yeshiva, like in the headline, because it was presumed that they were fake or at least it was kind of ambiguous as to whether or not they were. Have you ever heard of the expression, what you see is all there is? It's from Danny Kahneman, who's, um, you know, an Israeli psychologist, one of the fathers of modern behavioral psychology. And his point is that when you're presented with information, um, you you sometimes forget even to look outside of it. And, and there are things that there are assumptions that we make without even realizing we're making. So when the yeshiva called Rogers and said they weren't sending anyone else, um, we just it seems like the CJN, we took their word for it. Right. And so uh, turns out the fake cable guy story is fake news. Uh, insofar as they were sent by Rogers, they were subcontractors. Yeah. So Rogers did not have an official record of Rogers repairmen going to work on it. So the whole thing was whatever. These these poor guys, uh, these these two guys are now I don't know. Tens and tens of thousands of people have seen their images online and assume that they are secretly terrorists plotting to blow up. A and most of those something. people won't see. The update, because that's just the nature of, of right. updates. Very rarely do corrections get as much traction, even when you use the same image and say, you know, they were real cable guys or whatever. Like it's it's not gonna it's not gonna carry the same way. So it, that's just very unfortunate, and I think the CGN has to take a little responsibility. Yeah, like that. It, for sure. I, I was thinking about like how could this have gone differently? Because I mean, the yeshiva shouldn't have let those people in if they didn't sure. have ID and they didn't know they were coming. I mean, first of all. You should let anyone know that cable contractors are coming, but especially like a minority religious institution that has seen an increase in, in like hate crimes against it. It's easiest to blame Rogers for this. I agree. Yeah. You know, the they... monopoly. Who, who, who has <laughs> sympathy for them? And yeah, yeah. As much as Rogers or someone, maybe the subcontractor, I don't know exactly how it works, but someone should have alerted the yeshiva. The guy should have been carrying ID. But I realized after like, how dumb do you have to be to fake being a cable guy and not have any idea you'd think that was like 
one of the first things they would get as part of their costume. <laughs> my my big my big question about this is if these two guys, these innocent cable workers, were uh, Filipino, if they were Chinese or white, or white, would this story have no, traveled as I, far? I, I don't know. It. No. it fits into so many assumptions that we have. We, whoever, right? We as Jewish people of, oh, brown people with no ID trying to get in, right? It's just, it's so icky and 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 unfortunate. And, and yet, given the attacks on, on synagogues in North America and, and Europe, uh, you know, recently it was in Germany as well, in Yom Kippur, like, it's, it's hard to blame people for being suspicious. It's almost like the right answer would have been, don't let them in, but also don't make a news story about it. Yeah, but then until again, you know for sure. Until you know for sure, but I mean, how do how would they know if they're going to know for sure? Well, you wait for the police report to come back. For one, is that what confirmed that they were subcontractors? Yeah, there was a police report only a few days later. Um, well, maybe they felt like they were just going to walk next door to the synagogue and try in there. Maybe they felt they needed to sp- to sound the alarm. Yeah, no, it's not obvious. It's it's these are things that you have to consider. But um, you know, next time, what if? It is someone who who means harm, and and we're slower to report it because of this incident. But at the same time, I mean, yes, we as Jewish institutions have reason to be on high alert. We know that the stats say, um, like recently, it's been a lot more white nationalists who have been yeah. trying to do this kind of thing. And I, I just can't imagine that if it was two white guys, it would have been viewed 25,000 times, and that people would be so suspicious. What if those white guys were bald? <laughs> what if they had Nazi tattoos? Well, Swastika tattoos. No, then I know. it's more obvious. But I mean, but honestly, if it was two bald white guys, I and it still said don't think. Guys, I still don't I think it would be the same thing. I really don't. I mean, I saw comments on the update saying they were real cable guys. People saying like, "No, this is just a cover up. That's not true." Things like that. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> it, it was pretty bad, and like, yeah. I don't really know. It's it's always hard to beat the the. You know, the rebel conspiracy theorists, etc. I mean, listen, I saw the article at first and there was some part of me that said something to the effect of like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. You just I mean, you accept it when you read it. And we're a trusted news source, right? Mm. I trust our news. I know that, um, you know, we have, we have well-trained editors. Everything goes through at least three, at least two, if not three people read every article before it goes out. And we're all well-trained in journalism. We do our jobs well. Yeah. And and even so, I mean, I I. Like, Generally speaking. <laughs> um, and yet, yeah, someone who I, you know, like to think of myself as like progressive pluralistic and try not to be racist, but there's still those same like implicit biases in me as, as I know. I mean, maybe I would have responded similarly to a story of with a picture of skinheads, but it's, it's or just, fake skinheads. Yes. <laughs> um, fake skinheads, actual bald heads. But it, it's hard to say. It, it's it's just a disappointing situation, I guess. And it is hard to pinpoint exactly where it could have gone differently aside from alerting the yeshiva that there were people coming yeah well let it be a lesson to anyone if uh if someone knocks on your door claiming to be a cable guy don't assume that they're terrorists just because yeah, they that's, don't that's have probably ID. yeah that's probably fair to say
That has been your episode of the Canadian Jewish Schmooze today. Thanks so much for listening. We would love it if, before you go, find us on Facebook. We are the CJN Podcast Network. If you haven't yet subscribed on iTunes or Google Podcasts or Stitcher, search for us, subscribe. Give us five stars. Give us all the stars, whatever the maximum number of stars is. Or, you know what, an honest number of stars. And if you're interested in seeing the Song of Names scored by Howard Shore, it's going to be out in theaters December 25th. Makes sense to open a Jewish movie on Christmas. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, hey, we got nothing to do. I'm Alex Rose. My name is Michael Freeman, and I edited and produced this episode. Our intro music is by Vanya Zhuk. Our outro music is by Lache Swing. David Kond is our promotions manager and our high school mascot. And as always, you can find us at cjnews.com. 